Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Community supervision after incarceration is supposed to help people avoid being reincarcerated, but policies across the U.S. show probation and parole can have the opposite effect. Coming up, we'll hear from Pew Charitable Trusts about its report on ways states can reform probation and parole. Also, we'll talk with poet and Connecticut resident Reginald Dwayne Betts about his Million Book Project. It aims to get a wide range of books into the hands of men, women, and juveniles incarcerated today. First, we get an update on the major police accountability bill House members in Connecticut's General Assembly passed late last week. Will it make it through this week's special session before the Connecticut Senate? Joining us with more on Zoom is Kellen Lyons, a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, covering the intersection of mental health and criminal justice. Kellen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, We know that uh, after the death of George Floyd, uh, Connecticut lawmakers and the public wanted to see uh, more in terms of police accountability in our state. Uh, This bill passed uh, pretty early uh, Friday morning after an all-nighter in the Connecticut House. And right before that vote, there was a lot of of discussion about uh, this idea of qualified immunity and what that means for law enforcement. Can you briefly tell us again why this became a sticking point in this particular bill? So this was essentially, we're talking about a a complex legal doctrine that Mm -hmm. ultimately makes it harder to sue police, virtually impossible to sue police officers for misconduct or acts of violence. Um, we They rewrote the bill several times right before they brought it up to a vote. They didn't release the text of the bill until about 1.19 in the morning, and then they debated it for the next eight hours or so um, before ultimately passing it. So the bill doesn't outright eliminate qualified immunity, but it does try to make it more likely for a suit to be able to get to a jury that could eventually give damages and provide a redress for folks whose rights have been violated by officers. And it was a, it was a sticking point because many police officers and unions were concerned that it was going to hurt their their pipeline, the recruitment of new officers, and they were also worried that it was going to make people retire in mass and leave the profession altogether and ultimately make it harder for police officers to do their jobs because they were concerned that it would be um, not feasible for them to make these split-second decisions if they have a, a potential lawsuit hanging over their heads. Hmm. Again, this now has to go before uh, state senators. Does that mean that uh, the police union and others are still lobbying to see changes uh, when, when we talk about, again, getting rid of qualified immunity? Yeah, they, they are still uh, talking about their intense dislike for this, and they are holding rallies and such, um, and the Senate will end up voting tomorrow. What are you hearing in terms of the likelihood that this will pass? Again, it seemed uh, before the House vote that uh, this uh, bill might have been in peril. That was the headline that uh, that was uh, written just a couple of days uh, prior to the vote. Again, uh, this narrative and an amendment um, from Republicans that, again, they were worried about what that would mean, getting rid of qualified immunity. And then the Black and Puerto Rican caucus, they were able uh, to keep uh, this issue from dividing Democrats. Was this a surprise that it passed on Friday, Kellen? 
I don't know that I would I would say it was a surprise necessarily, um, but but now that we're just taking it to the Senate, we're sort of at an all or nothing, take it or leave it moment. I mean, if the Senate makes any changes to the bill and it goes back to the House, they they risk losing it entirely. Um, so now that it's out of the House, it's it's worth keeping an eye on on making sure that it, it doesn't change, and so therefore it can get to the governor's desk. Can you walk us through some other parts of the bill? Again, when we talk about police accountability, it means a lot of uh, different uh, measures that the public and others had wanted to see in terms of, uh, you know, investigating when there is police misconduct and that there actually is uh, accountability when something um, happens that violates the rights of a citizen, Kellen. So walk us through some of the other points. So it takes several uh, actions to try to hold police accountable for misconduct and, and, deadly use of force. Uh, first off, it it does narrow the circumstances in which police can use deadly force. Um, it, it doesn't merely look at the moment when deadly force is issued. Uh, it looks at some of the context around it, which is something that advocates have been calling for for a while. It also creates an inspector general to investigate the use of deadly force, uh, which is an attempt at, at a more independent investigation. Um, this individual will be, will be appointed by the Criminal Justice Commission. Um, they will be separate from police officers, so it won't be the, the prosecutors, the state's attorneys that are uh, investigating police use of force as they are now. Um, and that, that's a system that has yielded only one criminal charge since 2001. It also gives independent um, citizen review boards subpoena power so that they can try to hold um, municipal police accountable. And it does provide a mechanism for this uh, training council at the state level. It's called POST, Police Officer Standards and Training Council. It allows them to decertify police uh, and discipline them if they engage in, in an instance of misconduct. Going back to the inspector general, that's uh, interesting that you know this was approved. I guess the question is, will this office, if it's passed in the Senate, be fully funded? Uh, will this inspector general have uh, enough staff and resources uh, to do its work uh, when and if needed? Yeah, the, the chief state's attorney, Rich Colangelo, came out with uh, in his in his written testimony. He gave a, a list of suggestions for how to staff that um, that office, and so. There, the money will will presumably be there. It's worth noting that it will get its also get its own building as well. So it will be physically separate uh, as opposed to symbolically separate and independent from the existing structures in place. Mm. Kellen, can you talk more about um, how the rules around when police can search cars during traffic stops, how will that be changed? So this is a this is a pretty big part of the bill that hasn't gotten as much attention. Um, but it has to do with this idea of when police officers do traffic stops, you know, often we're talking about two different things that they're trying to deal with. Uh, are they doing it for roadway safety or are they doing it to reduce crime? Um, there's been some data that's been released uh, in Connecticut about there's these racial disparities um, when officers do those stops and searches uh, in an effort to reduce crime. And, and we don't actually see much measurable impact on it. Um, but it, when we do it for roadway safety, it does have significant uh fewer racial disparities, and it does have also um, a more measurable impact on roadway safety. So what this bill is attempting to do is make it harder for police to search uh, cars solely based on consent. So when they ask someone if it's all right, if they can search their vehicle. Um, the state data shows that there are pretty significant racial disparities um, on on people of color who's, who are searched by consent. I think black and Hispanic motorists are between two and three and a half times more likely to be to have their cars searched than white drivers. And 
that's a type of searching that yields contraband less than 20% of the time. Uh, and it's also worth noting that when police officers search white cars, white owned cars, they are more likely to turn up contraband. Um, this is bringing us to a probable cause standard, which means the police officer has to have a probable cause to be able to search that vehicle, um, which it shows that there are fewer racial disparities in there and it, and it generally yields more contraband. You're hearing Kellen Lyons here on Where We Live. He's a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror covering the intersection of mental health and criminal justice. He was recapping for us some some important measures in this police accountability bill that passed the Connecticut House late last week. It now goes before state senators tomorrow. And so in terms of, again, these uh, traffic stops, uh, clarifying that there needs to be probable cause before a police officer stops versus stopping uh, a motorist and then looking for something that he or she may have or have in their in their actual vehicle. Yeah, and it, and it also um, charges this police accountability and transparency task force with studying whether or not we should separate um, motor vehicle offenses into primary and secondary categories, mm-hmm. um, which could potentially give police officers a little bit more guidance on, on when to pull someone over so that they aren't pulling folks over for uh, motor vehicle violations that don't have a ton of impact on the roadway's uh, safety and also uh, generally have higher levels of racial disparities in terms of who is pulled over for those stops. Mm. I'm wondering, Kellen, uh, if this does pass the Connecticut Senate, I mean, you know, how long before uh, these measures in this bill um, need to be implemented? How much time do uh, police around the state, will they have time for uh, more training to understand uh, these changes and how they do their jobs? So I haven't done a line by line read through of the bill yet. It it largely mirrors what was released through the draft proposal released the week before. But once it came out pretty late in the game on Thursday into Friday, um, there wasn't a ton of time for people to really digest and, and understand the start dates for everything. But from what I what I remember in the draft bill, it, it sort of staggered some of these uh, dates. I mean, the police accountability tra- task force isn't going to issue a report until before the next legislative session. So they have a host of things that they need to study um, that they will have what, five months, six months before they have to turn those around. Uh, I believe the inspector general, uh, uh, that provision will go into effect in October, but then they have to you know, do the appointment process of the Criminal Justice Commission and things of that nature. Um, so it's going to take some time before we move through, but it will... Uh, it will move us in the direction of, of police accountability. Mm. I wanted to switch uh, to another topic that you've been covering, especially in this pandemic, and that is the issue of COVID-19 in Connecticut's prisons. Uh, we saw a, a large number of incarcerated individuals being released into the community because of health concerns, but re- health concerns. But remind us again how the DOC got to that place. Was it because of groups like the ACLU that were calling for people to be released because of, again, this threat of COVID-19? spreading in congregate settings like prisons and jails? Yeah, advocates uh, like the ACLU and and family members who have incarcerated loved ones have been calling on the department and the governor to do a lot since since the pandemic started. Uh, There was a lawsuit filed by the ACLU in state and federal court that was an attempt to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 among people who are are incarcerated. Uh, And it Ultimately reached, they ultimately reached an agreement that was approved last week. Um, many of the provisions in it are actually things that the department was already doing, uh, things like um, providing um, soap and such to, to, to inmates, 
as well as prioritizing folks who are age 65 or older and, and are medically compromised, um, prioritizing them for discretionary releases. Um, but there are the, the most notable part of that agreement that ended up coming into place is there's a there's a five member panel formed uh, within the next four weeks or three weeks now that that's going to produce reports for the Department of Correction, uh, essentially giving recommendations on mass testing strategies, quarantining and, and sanitization. I understand that that settlement went forward over the objections of some of the actual inmates in the lawsuit. What were their concerns, Kellen? So there were about 500 folks who ended up responding to the settlement, um, either objecting to it or asking for more information. A pretty significant number just hadn't seen the language, so they didn't really know what they were being asked to comment on. So they had asked to, to see the agreement so they could weigh in. Uh, many others had a, had a slew of concerns. Um, I think one of the most common sentiments I heard was was a plea to expand the number of uh, the, the categories of the criteria for releasing inmates, um, make it a little bit younger, not just age 65, uh, include folks who are not don't have high medical scores in the Department of Correction, because they said that that was largely um, a somewhat confusing process as to how they assess those scores. Um, there was also a lot of pleas regarding um, face masks uh, mm. being worn by correction staff. Um, I, there was there have been executive orders and there's there's guidance at the department level that correction officers have to wear face masks uh, when they are when social distancing is not possible. But I've heard from a lot of folks who says that they're just simply not not doing that. Mm. Kellen, we know that coronavirus is still around us. I'm thinking about uh, the people who are still incarcerated today in our state prisons and jails. You know, are they able to see their family members? And is that something that the DOC uh, would possibly uh, look into um, as we see these rates uh, decreasing in our state? They are not able to see their family members. And this was mm. something else that was a relatively common sentiment. Um, and, and a lot of family members with incarcerated loved ones are calling for it as well. They are a lot of folks inside who, have, who are ineligible for certain programs because of the category of their, their conviction or the, the length of time on their sentence. They, they say in their objections to the lawsuit that this is a form of rehabilitation for them, that this mm. gives them a way to, to unwind um, their crime and their own their own healing process, and uh, they have not been able to see their families for for months at a time since since about March. Uh, the department is working on guidance. They said that they're looking at other states, um, but they they still haven't moved in that direction quite yet. Uh, and about I think at least eight states have have resumed some form of visitation. And some of the inmates actually provided guidance to the department and wrote to the governor saying, this is how we can we can do this and bring this back so that it will be safe so we can see our families again. Mm, that's an interesting point that eight states have uh, permitted uh, those who are incarcerated to see their families, but Connecticut isn't one of them uh, just yet. Uh, Kellen Lyons, we want to thank you for joining us today, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, covering the intersection of mental health and criminal justice. We'll tweet out links to some of his latest stories at Where We Live. Kellen, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, if you enjoy reading, you know books hold more than just a good story or important facts. Books can change lives. We hear about a new project to bring a million books inside U.S. prisons and juvenile detention centers. Poet Reginald Dwayne Betts joins us after the break to tell us more. You can, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In late June, the Mellon Foundation awarded Yale Law School's Justice Collaboratory a $5.25 million grant. The money is for an initiative to bring books into prisons and juvenile detention centers across the U.S. And we're not talking about any old books. Poet and Connecticut resident Reginald Dwayne Betts joins us now with more. This was his idea. Uh, Dwayne Betts, thank you for joining us to talk about the Million Book Project. We hope you're doing well today. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing wonderful. I think um, the easiest way I, w- I would describe the project is to say that when you get incarcerated, it's almost like you're lost in time. Mm. And, and the question is, how do you make sure that those intervening moments get filled with something that you could carry with you when you leave? And I think the books are a common denominator in the lives of many people, and that the stories that books contain are a common denominator in the lives of everyone. And the notion of this project is to sort of curate 500 books that present, you know, thousands of different journeys for people to come to a better understanding of who they are, but also to fill that time with more than blank space. So that at least for them, the period of incarceration has a symbol that's not just invested in degradation. You know, so much of incarceration is about um, dignity stripping devices, you know, and the book is a dignity affirming device. And so I wanted a project that allowed us and even allowed people who work within the DOC to publicly acknowledge that literature, history, poetry, fiction, and bringing people into prisons who produce that kind of work is a meaningful um, component of, of what any rehabilitation should look like. You were on our show a few months ago talking about that period in your life when you were incarcerated. Talk about the impact books had on you as a young person. Uh, you know, one easy way to say it is that uh, I met my wife in a bookstore. <laughs> Which, But, you know, it's to say that my love affair with books started in some ways when I read A Lesson Before Dying, cover to cover. It's the mm-hmm. first book that I picked up and started reading and couldn't stop reading. And my entire eight year sentence, I've read many, many, many books, but you know, frequently books that I would come across in college, um, I had no access to when I was in prison. Contemporary books, books published within the previous three to five years, I had no access to. And some authors who I would have one of their books, I had no idea that they wrote three or four or five books. And so, you know, this project is about expanding that access But also this project, I think, is about affirming the fact that the relationship that I had with literature that started in 1996, uh, you know, led to me getting a job in a bookstore. The bookstore, uh, this guy named Yao Yao Glover, he was the first person I met who, you know, books and my knowledge of books and my awareness of books and my appreciation of books meant more than my criminal record. And he's the person who hired me and allowed me to be assistant manager and a manager in a bookstore. And that's how I met my wife. And so, you know, my life is really centered around um, literature and books far more in a way than it, than it has been defined by um, the violence that led me to prison. When we think about libraries in prisons, what kind of books are missing? And the cost of even getting those books uh, into these prisons, uh, Dwayne, um, again, as part of this initiative, how you're looking to, to change uh, what's available and we, and understand why this is so important. Well, well the cost is enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, the cost, you're talking about a $5 million project, 
And I like to say that this is a $5 million project that primarily is bringing material goods to people in prison who, who need those resources. This is not a project that's meant to suggest that incarceration is legitimate, but it is a, proce- a project that's meant to say that incarceration exists right now. And we need more than activism and protests. We need something that says, I see you and you have children who are in the world right now. And so you need this young adult book to read to your son. You know, you need this children's book to read to your daughter so that they are a part of your life while you're incarcerated. And so picking the books and selecting the books is um is going to be intense and, and joyous. But part of the joy will be actually talking to people about why they love books and, and, and casting as broad and wide range of the net as possible, recognizing that 500 isn't a lot of books. But if I do a good job, if, if my team does a good job, coming to grips with what that 500 should contain will give us, you know, an endless amount of data, conversations, resources to share with people who are incarcerated and who aren't incarcerated. Mm. So a 500 book collection and a thousand prisons around the U.S. and also in Puerto Rico. Again, uh, this is the goal. So tell us more about the process of curating. I understand you're working with Elizabeth Hinton, who's a professor of history and African-American studies at Yale. Talk about the books that are more about the books that will go into this collection. Oh, so you, uh, yeah, because I, I didn't answer your last question. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and that was such a smooth way to tell me, you know, you didn't answer my question. <laughs> but um so me and Elizabeth, we're taking sort of uh, founders' rights and we're picking the first 250. And it's just me and her arguing about what should be there and what shouldn't. And then in terms of picking the second 250, we're doing a few things. One is we're creating a survey that asks people three really significant questions. What book profoundly changed the way you think about reading? What book or books do you think is essential to, to your professional expertise? And then... What book or book that you have to read to be the person you are today? And we're, you know, casting a wide net and, answer, and asking those questions because I think oftentimes you talk about books and mm-hmm. you mention books that you feel like you need to mention that sound smart. Like nobody's going to say, I didn't read Souls of Black Folks. And as important as, as Souls of Black Folks is, what about Black Reconstruction? Mm-hmm. And, and people will say, I've read The Blue Side, but I'm asking questions about paradise. You know, I want to know is is the whole array of of August Wilson um, in prison libraries, and typically it's not. Typically, plays aren't found in prison libraries. And so, when you ask what is missing, I think it's a few things that's missing. Um, one of the things is a robust collection of science fiction. Uh, one of the things is a robust representation of um, artists of different um, of like women, of artists of different sexualities. Um, one of the other things that just tends to be missing. Period is a robust collection of history books. I mean, you got a whole, you know, you got a whole canon of books about the Civil War that I didn't know that it existed while I was incarcerated that I want to bring. And then finally, you have contemporary writers who are just great. Um, Sadia Hartman, uh, uh, Danielle, Danielle Evans, people whose books just wouldn't end up in a prison library. And it has really nothing to do with the, the wants and desires of the librarian. It just, it just has to do with the fact that the resources are frequently Low. I'm looking at my, my bookshelf right now. Geek Love would not be in a prison library. And that is a absolutely fantastic book. Mm. Daniel Sarred's Until We Reckon, it just came out this year and it's in hardback. So it wouldn't be in most prison libraries. But we could create a kind of relationship with her publisher to make sure that we could get some paperback versions of this book published and bring them into the library. 
And one great example I'll give actually is Women Talking by Miriam Towes. And this is just a fantastic novel, right? And, and it raises all of these philosophical questions about punishment, about crime, about agency. And it's all around these women who are talking after a series of horrific assaults happen on this Mennonite community, right? But it just wouldn't be in prison libraries because as great as the book is, you know, we publish roughly two to three million books a year around the world. I mean, in the United States. Mm. So it's so many things that will just get lost in a gap. And one of the things, though, in terms of the prison libraries is we're trying to create a project that works with the prison libraries. And so these books won't be housed necessarily in the library because the library is a space that's set apart from the housing unit. And for all kinds of reasons, people can't make it to the library. Sometimes their job hours um, uh, are in conflict with the library hours. Sometimes they just don't like to leave the housing unit. Sometimes they're in a solitary confinement unit. And so you have to have more books on that unit. And what we're trying to do is create more of a conversation between the books that exist in the library and the books that will exist in our catalog. And so we're working closely um, with prison librarians and prison officials to really think about what the gaps are. And those gaps exist. I mean, what is like, <laughs> like what is great romance novels in prison? You know, those gaps exist like everywhere from great historical work to great romance novels to great historical fiction. Um, the gaps are just kind of sadly abundant. But the reason why the gaps are abundant is because the possibilities in reading is actually abundant, right? So the gaps don't necessarily just speak to the phase of prison libraries, the mm -hmm. gaps speak really to the opportunity. And I wanna like emphasize that the gaps are less about the phase of budgets and the phase of the committed people who work in prison libraries and prison education programs. The gaps are really just about the endless number of opportunities that exist. Mm. You're hearing Reginald Dwayne Betts on Where We Live. Uh, he's joining us on Zoom. He's a poet and director of the Million Book Project. We're hearing about that initiative uh, today. I like that you talked about all these different genres that are important to have in these collections. I'm thinking about your poetry collection, Felon, uh, Dwayne. Yeah, um, you know, actually, it's, it takes 120 days, roughly, to earn enough money to purchase my poetry collection. Mm. And so one of the things I did is um, I did some work and got some funding to produce a freedom edition of Felling. And, and that edition I'm giving away to everybody in prison. But that was the, the sort of start, the germination of uh, this project was first. It was uh, maybe in some way selfish. I was thinking about how to get my book in people's hands. <laughs> but then it expanded because I, I realized that it wasn't just, you know, my book that people didn't necessarily have access to. It was it was so many great works of literature that I'm not saying mine is a great work of literature, but it, it's so many great works of literature that people just um, can't hold. And, it, and it's something powerful about, you know, I think about prison and, and many people think about prison and they think about suffering and they think about violence. I think about prison and I think about the first time I read Lord of the Rings mm. and, a, and a guy who introduced me to Lord of the Rings when he said, if you like Ninja by this guy, which was just genre fiction. It was like a thriller. He was like, if you like Ninja by, by this guy, you will love Lord of the Rings. Now, who understands those two books to be connected? Mm -hmm. Something that is like fiercely just a page turning, um, you know, thriller connected to talking. And that's how I got introduced to talking. And so what I want to create, what we are creating is a project that that does that for people. I'm mm -hmm. talking to one librarian, I'll tell you what she said. She said, uh, 
she was talking about when somebody she loved passed. And she said, I read The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion that year. And she said, you know, I've read that book every year since then. And we think about why books matter to people. And that's also part of what this project is, is to create these moments that people could leave with so that their memories of incarceration isn't just about the sadness and the pain and the isolation that incarceration breeds, that it can also be about the discoveries that exist within a good book. Frankly, the discoveries that exist within even a mediocre book. When I think about uh, this project, it's an opportunity for uh, our country to rethink about what corrections looks like in this country. You mentioned when people think of prison, they think of suffering and, and uh, you know, it's easy to think about hopelessness. But this idea of this collection of books, a wide range, uh, uh, giving people something to look forward to, but also something that gives them hope uh, for their time spent uh, hopefully outside uh, those walls at some point. Uh, definitely. And also, I think that you think I had one relationship um, with a prison guard. I used to, when I was at the juvenile detention center, I used to sneak books into my room. And and these books were, one of the authors was uh, uh, Richard Buck, right? And he wrote Illusions and he wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And these were kind of like new age, space age books. Um, but I, I, and I was a kid reading this book and it happened to be a, a one of the gods who worked the night shift. He walked past and he saw me reading by the light of the moon, right? And he opens the cell and he's like, you can't have books in here at night. And he's taking it from me. He's like, you're reading this? And he was so surprised that I was reading this. And mind you, this is a great literature. You know, this is just like a sort of space age, new religion kind of thing. And um, and me and him built a relationship because of that book that I was reading. And then, so then each night he would get the books out of my locker and give them to me and let me read it. And I remember one night, uh, my Aunt Violet, she would collect four leaf clovers when, you know, her whole life. And she had sent me this book, it was hers. And he gave it to me and it fell on the floor and like 30, 40 clovers fell out. Mm. And this is an image that I have. I mean, it, you know, it actually kind of brings tears to my eyes because it's an image that I have of my experience of incarceration that is that is like adjacent to the suffering, right? But mm. it is different. And it tells me that, you know, my life was more meaningful than just the suffering. And I think that it told him that, you know, and that he treated me in a different way. And so part of it is to, is to create an argument that says that we should treat everybody that's incarcerated in a different way. And, you know, a book isn't a piece of legislation mm -hmm. and a book isn't going to end mass incarceration. But people suffer for the lack of what's in a book every day. And, and we could do something to shift that. You're hearing Reginald Dwayne Betts again. He's a poet. He lives in Connecticut, and he's director of the Million Book Project. We want him uh, to stay with us as we uh, head to break, and we talk uh, to Pew Charitable Trusts about how community supervision may be contributing to the rates of incarceration in the U.S. You can join the conversation to 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up Tuesday, at least 90 Connecticut residents were told they had COVID-19, but the state says they received false positive tests. On the next Where We Live, we'll check in with Acting Department of Public Health Commissioner Deidre Gifford to answer our questions and yours. You can join us. That's tomorrow. Now, uh, my guest on Zoom is Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's poet and director of the Million Book Project. This is an initiative to bring 500 book collections to more than 1,000 in prisons around uh, the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Uh, before we uh, shift gears and talk about uh, this report from Pew Charitable Trust, uh, Dwayne, I wanted to just uh, have you explain how you're also helping uh, or hoping uh, to connect those who are incarcerated uh, with the literary community. How will you do that? Oh, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that happens is prison is just an invisible space. People don't go inside and it's so hard for people inside to reach the outsiders. If you think about beyond that family, I've been to dozens of prisons across the country and far too often, I mean, literally 90% of the time, I'm the first poet that guys inside have ever Mm -hmm. seen. I'm the first poet that women inside and children inside have ever seen. And so what I'm doing is this is both a national project and a local project. You take, let's just use myself as an example. No, let's use James Foreman as an example since he's a local Connecticut guy. Mm -hmm. The idea would be of course, his book, Locking Up Our Own, would be included in the collection. And then he would be invited to come and, and give a talk at a local prison. And I know I know that he would. But then let's just say it was somebody else who's like, I, I've never been in a prison before. And I'm a bit nervous. And I just don't know what to expect. I would say, listen, when you go into a prison, it doesn't have to be a maximum security prison. We incarcerate people in supermaxes, maxes, medium security prisons, road camps. And we could find any one of these places that need to see you. One of the places in terms of prisons that had the least amount of resources are the places where people are closest to going home. But those folks need resources too. So he might go to a road camp. And a road camp, I have people who've been locked up anywhere from like eight months to 10 years. And so he would go to a road camp and he would get the same kind of presentation that he would give at a university across the country. And he would get something from them and they would get something from him. And, um, and then he would leave. And so that way it becomes a local... New Haven project, as well as a national project. And we would do that with between 50 and 100 literary ambassadors um, all across the country. And I've already had, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners um, like James, like Nicole Hannah-Jones. I've had poets. Um, I've just had a, the the response to this project has been so humbling Mm. and overwhelming (laughs) that in some ways um, it, it, it feels like the, maybe the most important thing that I'll ever do outside of being a, a husband and a, and a parent, just because I know that people in prison not only need the presence of, of us, but they also need to know that we think that their lives matter and that their incarceration matters and their experiences matter. And so essentially, you know, that's, that's what I'll do. Ask writers to go in and do the same thing that they do for the public, mm-hmm. because the prison is also the public. Again, Reginald Dwayne Betts uh, was on Where We Live today to talk about the Million Book Project. We'll tweet out information at Where We Live. Uh, We've been talking about the importance of how we treat individuals that are incarcerated and the resources that we provide them. Uh, Something to think about, too, is when people are released from prison, uh, the support and resources for them in the community. And I wanted to bring in to our next guest, uh, Michael Williams on Zoom, Senior Manager of Policy at Pew Charitable trusts. Uh, uh, Pew looked at uh, how uh, community supervision or parole and probation um, are handled in different states. Again, these are uh, 
alternatives uh, to incarceration. But this report found that parole and probation can be contributors to individuals being reincarcerated for technical violations. We wanted to learn more. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we begin uh, learning more about the report, explain to us the differences between probation and parole. And again, uh, the the goal of these uh, two alternatives. So probation is intended to be an alternative to incarceration. So a person is convicted of an offense um, and rather than sentenced to a period of confinement, they are sentenced to supervision in the community, most often by a uh, probation officer. Parole, on the other hand, is a period of supervision that is post-incarceration. And so the the goal of of both systems is to reduce the number of people who are being held in our local local jails and state and federal uh, prisons. So tell us what Pew Charitable Trust found when you looked at um, how parole and probation are handled in different states. And um, is it a revolving door in some aspects uh, with the way uh, certain um, uh, parole and probation officers deal with uh, violations? Certainly. So uh, Pew has been in the criminal justice reform space since uh, around 2007. And in that time, we have worked to advance fiscally sound and data-driven policies and practices uh, with the goal to protect public safety, ensure accountability, and more importantly, to reduce correctional populations. Um, In 2018, we shifted our focus from sentencing and corrections reform to community supervision, um, or more, as is commonly known, probation and parole. Uh, We launched this initiative with the publication of our report titled High Stakes and Missed Opportunities. And in that report, we found that uh, one in 55 U.S. adults, nearly 4.5 million people were on probation and parole at any given time. This is twice the number of people who are incarcerated in state and federal prisons and our local jails. Um, And ironically, of this 4.5 million people, the majority uh, are on for nonviolent offenses. Um, And at least four in 10 were on probation and parole for relatively minor offenses. Um, We see... uh, at times, we see people on supervision for traffic offenses or inability to pay fines and fees associated with whatever infractions they may have committed. Um, and then uh, our, one of our partners, uh, the Council of State Governments, they found that some 45% of prison admission, prison and jail admissions are a result of revocations for, on probation and parole. Um, and many of these are for technical violations. And for those unfamiliar with the system, Technical violations are those that don't involve new crimes. These are violations of um, curfews and failure to report to a probation officer, failed or missed drug testing, and um, failure to pay or inability to pay in most cases, or several cases, uh, inability to pay these fines and fees. Mm. So we've been working with our partner organizations to just highlight some of the problems that exist and then to advance policies that will um, that will alleviate some of those problems. It would seem that people who've committed low-level crimes, uh, you know, if they have a, a certain level of supervision, it can be a real barrier to their successful reintegration, Michael. Can you talk about some of the rules that, say, someone that committed a low-level crime is under and how uh, that can be a deterrent to help them, you know, again, transition back into a community and, and having a life again? Yeah, so some of those rules include frequent reporting to supervision officers, um, which can uh, which can get in the way of people being able to work. 
um, travel restrictions, which also inhibit um, a person's ability to work certain jobs. They can't travel throughout, you know, from state to state. Um, we also, and again, I mentioned these fines and fees that mm -hmm. are oftentimes prohibitive and people are unable to pay. Um, you know, substance use and, and mental health disorders and people who are ordered into treatment and many jurisdictions just don't have the treatment resources to accommodate those who are involved in the criminal justice system as well as those who aren't. And so these are policies that oftentimes inhibit people's ability to successfully complete uh, supervision terms. Um, you know, the research that we've done shows that some of these um, these conditions, they're actually a, a de de deterrent to people being able to complete supervision. And when you mm -hmm. impose these types of conditions on low risk people, you actually make them worse and you actually uh, prevent them from being able to complete their supervision. And then that ends up leading to other types of activities and behaviors. You're hearing Michael Williams. He's Senior Manager of Policy at Pew Charitable Trust. Again, as we learn more about the research that Pew um, has done looking at parole and probation across the country, you're talking with us here in Connecticut, uh, Michael. How does uh, po Connecticut's policy stack up against other states uh, in terms of parole and probation, ways that our state could improve? So we looked at uh, some data from Connecticut and our latest data that we have available shows that there are about 41,000 people or one in 68 people in the state who are on supervision. Um, the average length of probation uh, in uh, Connecticut is around 24 months, um, which is an increase over past years. Um, one, of the, one of the positives about probation is that they do have probation term limits. And so the maximum probation term in Connecticut for a misdemeanor is three years and the maximum for a felony is five years. Um, and these numbers could be slightly higher or lower, uh, but we have, we've, we've seen some shifting population trends as a result of the pandemic. Um, the pandemic, which has spread quickly through jails and prisons, um, some agencies are uh, implementing policies to address that. Um, to meet social distancing uh, guidelines, agencies are moving individuals who would otherwise be incarcerated onto community supervision. While these actions are necessary, of course, to protect public health, they also constrain tight community supervision budgets. Um, to compensate, we've seen agencies who have begun suspending some of the practices that I talked about earlier, such as um, these frequent reporting requirements, uh, collecting fines and fees from people on supervision, um, as well as trying to limit the number of um, um, revocations that lead to people being reincarcerated. Uh, Dwayne Betts is also with us on Zoom. I understand, Dwayne, that when you were at Yale Law, you did research on parole in Connecticut. What are your thoughts about this idea, again, of a revolving door between parole and prison? Um, is Connecticut uh, doing better than other states in, in dealing with this issue? Yeah, so this, this research was from a couple of years ago, but one of the things that we found is exactly what has been discussed this morning. Uh, we looked at a uh, three to four month slice of the revocations. And actually we did a couple of things. We looked at all of the revocations and then we had a team of students. I was a student and um, actually go and watch the parole board make the decisions. And, you know, it was every single person got there. It was frequently special parole, but every single person got their special parole um, revoked. All of it, uh, like 99% was for technical violations. And these technical violations range from, I, I watched one person uh, get an additional six months on their prison sentence 
for failing to um, sleep at the right house. Mm-hmm. And the parole board allowed them to change the house to his child's mother's house upon his release. So he did six additional months for sleeping in the very house that he was allowed to sleep in when he came home. And I think one of the things that happened, one of the things that I witnessed is just the real disconnect between people who make decisions and the lives of people who are being influenced and, and, and impacted and affected by the decisions that they make. It was just a such a huge gap in understanding. Somebody went to prison for an additional year because they threw urine and and their ex-girlfriend's car. And and it, I get it, it's disgusting, but you don't do it a year in prison for something like that. And and the real problem I think is that these are the kind of decisions that happen and under the cover of darkness. Mm. You know, without the without the Pew report, even with the Pew report, when you say that every um, revocation or the majority of revocations are for technical violations, the only way you understand how horrendous this is, is if you sit in a room and you actually hear the details of what these violations are for. One guy had a false positive on a cocaine test because he was HIV positive. And the only reason he didn't get violated for that was because it was a member of the parole board who was a lawyer who worked on a situation that gave her knowledge to say that he was telling the truth. But he still got violated because um, he refused to stay at the at the. It, it, it doesn't matter why he got violated. Mm-hmm. Just to say it was a technical violation, and and you hear the stories, and um and it, and it's just frequently unconscionable. Oh, wait- One guy got violated because he had a receipt in his halfway house for liquor. He was sent back to prison for a receipt. And he might have drank it, he might not have, but who goes to prison for six months for having a drink? That is not the kind of world we want to have. Michael, on that point, uh, with Pew's research, you know, how, what are some of the recommendations of how states can, uh, you know, have better oversight of these parole and probation officers and the decisions they make, whether someone stays uh, in the community or they get sent back to prison? So, um, and you, you asked about Connecticut, and I think it's really important. Um, one of the things I think Connecticut does that is pretty progressive is that they have uh, mandatory review periods where uh, parole and probation officers are required to review cases to, to determine if a person can be released from supervision early. I think some of the policies that we are advocating here are to decrease the number of people who are on supervision. Um, and, I, and the systems are so, I think probation, probation officers and parole officers, they are caught between a rock and a hard place, right? So they, they, have, they are charged with protecting public safety, but then they're also charged with helping those who are on supervision to successfully complete those, those terms. And so we're advocating policy that will uh, really push to reduce the number of people who are on supervision and to get people off of supervision as soon as possible um, so that we can limit the negative impacts um, that Dwayne mentions um, that people experience while under supervision. Mm. I should note that the Department of Corrections here in Connecticut, their Parole and Community Services Unit, actually put out a press release late last week uh, saying that its Parole and Community Services Division announced it's reduced the number of technical violations parolees they supervise have received by 76 percent uh, from mm. 2012 uh, to 2019. It goes on to say uh, their philosophy, the shift in philosophy, uh, is really about seeing reincarceration as a last resort 
Uh, Michael, we just have uh, about a minute left, and this kind of shift, uh, this is something that states really need to evaluate. You know, what is the point of community supervision, not to send people back to prison on a technical violation? Exactly. You know, one of one of the advocates in the field talks about the role of a supervision officer going from a referee where he's throwing flags at every every violation to being a coach and really helping people to make that transition off of supervision. And we think that's a, a, a good analogy for the direction that community supervision should go in. Um, while COVID is certainly an unfortunate situation, we're seeing states try different things to alleviate the number of people who are incarcerated. And that means reducing the number of people who end up back in prison or jail as a result of these technical violations. And so we're looking at states who are implementing these interim policies and work and talking with them about implementing these um, permanently so that we can reduce the population and we can reduce the number of people who end up back in our jails and prisons as a result of these technical violations. Mm-hmm. We're going to share out this report again from Pew Charitable Trust. You can go to WMPR.org slash where we live. Michael Williams is Senior Manager of Policy at Pew Charitable Trust. We thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Also, Reginald Dwayne Betts, always a pleasure to have you back. Poet and director of the Million Book Project. We can't wait to hear uh, what this, how this project uh, transforms uh, prisons around our country. We hope to have you back soon. Definitely. Always a pleasure. Thanks. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back tomorrow.